As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Welcome back to Unapologetic, helping you to understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. I'm Ruth Jackson, and Christmas is only a few days away now, so I would love to wish you and those you love a very happy Christmas. And Christmas is the theme of today's podcast. But before we hear from our guest, just a quick reminder to head over to our website, premierunbelievable.com, to find more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a free ebook. I also want to remind you about our brand new online apologetics course, Science, Faith and the Evidence for God with John Lennox. It includes nearly four hours of video material with John Lennox, Emeritus Professor of Mathematics and Philosophy of Science at Oxford University. The course is led by Justin Briley of Premier Unbelievable and it includes questions and assignments to help ground your learning. To celebrate the launch of this course, we're extending a 30% discount until the new year. The offer ends on Wednesday the 4th of January, so enrol now at premierunbelievable.com slash Lennox and learn how to make sense of science, faith and the evidence for God. But now for today's show. As we approach Christmas, there are so many questions we could ask about the birth narratives. Why do only two of the four Gospels mention Jesus' birth? Can we really believe in a virgin birth? Are the biblical sources reliable? And many, many more. Today's guest, Charles Foster, helps to answer some of these in his book, The Christmas Mystery. Charles is a writer and a fellow of Exeter College, Oxford University. This is part two of our discussion. Charles, we touched briefly on some of the differences in Matthew and Luke's accounts of the Christmas stories, um, which we're going to go into more detail now. But just would you remind us of some of those differences before we sort of dive into the specifics? Yes. So they agree, do Matthew and Luke, that Mary and Joseph have been betrothed, um, that uh, Mary conceives a child supernaturally from the Holy Spirit, uh, that she is a virgin at the time of that conception and a virgin at the time that Jesus is born, and that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Um, That's all that they really agree about. Um, (laughs) In Matthew, Mary and Joseph seem to be residents of Bethlehem. There's no pre-birth travel involved. Jesus isn't born in an inn. He's born conventionally in a house. Uh, Matthew is much darker uh, than Luke. It's in Matthew that you have the horrific story of 
Herod's plot to kill Jesus, which involves killing all the children of the Bethlehem area two years or under. Uh, you have the uh, flight of the Holy Family to Egypt to escape this. They stay there until the death of Herod. Um, they plan to uh, return to Judea, but because Herod's son is ruling there, they change plan and go up to Nazareth. In, in Luke, it's all much more placid. Um, mm. Nazareth, Nazareth appears to be the family home. Uh, so Luke needs the vehicle of the census um, of Quirinius to bring them to Bethlehem. Uh, once they're in Bethlehem, they have a quieter time than they do in Matthew. Uh, Luke has the birth in an inn, not a house. It's in Luke that you have the angel choirs of the shepherds. And in Luke, Jesus is brought to the Jerusalem temple in the conventional way, blessed by Simeon and Anna, who predict great things for him, and then they go quietly home uh, to Galilee. So very different. Uh, and in neither of these accounts, of course, do you have any of the things that we love so much about the Christmas story. Uh, we don't have the farm animals worshipping. Um, we don't have three kings. Uh, they're not kings at all. They are, mm. they are shamans. They are astrologers. Um, we only say there are three of them because there are three types of gift. Um, very different from the nativity story that we have grown up with. Very surprising, the real nativity story. Very subversive, very dark, very mm. disconcerting. One of the things that's sort of significantly different between Matthew and Luke is the genealogies as well, isn't it, at the beginning? Would you say just a little bit about why they seem to be so different and, you know, the amount of people in the genealogies and all of that? Because you go into quite a lot of detail um, about that in your brilliant book, The Christmas Mystery. But I guess for a lot of us, that would be something that we just skip through, like, oh, genealogies, let's move on. But you spend quite a lot of time dwelling on that and the importance of that, don't you? Yeah, I, I was put off. As almost everyone else's for many, many years, because they're very forbidding and they look mm. boring and irrelevant. And they're certainly really difficult. But the, the first thing that you see when you look hard at these genealogies in Matthew and Luke is that they're radically different. Mm. Um, so from, from Adam to Abraham, you've got Luke alone. Uh, Matthew doesn't say anything about it at all. L Luke and Matthew agree. Uh, about the period from uh, Abraham to David. And then from David to Joseph, uh, Luke and Matthew disagree almost completely. Mm. Um, it, it's very plain that Luke and Matthew are both depending on documents which are unknown to the Hebrew Bible and which specifically contradict certain parts of the Hebrew Bible. Um, there have been lots of attempts to reconcile these chronologies. Um, to my view, to my eyes, those, view, those attempts are hopeless. So one of the most famous attempts was in the third century by Julius Africanus. He said, oh, look, there's no problem here. We can explain the discrepancies by reference to the idea of uh, leveratic marriage. So Jewish law at the time, a, a man who dies leaving uh, a childless widow, um, has his uh, bequest to the future redeemed by his brother. 
because his brother uh, is required to marry the dead man's widow, and the first resulting male heir is regarded legally as the son of the dead brother. So the dead man's line continues. And it, it doesn't work with these genealogies at all. Mm. There are simply too many dead brothers. <laughs> uh, and in the much shorter Matthew genealogy, many generations, whole generations are just missing. Mm. Um, another way of, of trying to square these genealogies was by saying, well, Matthew is talking about the genealogy of Joseph and Luke's talking about the genealogy of Mary. But mm-hmm. um, we don't get that from the text itself. Mm. And uh, uh, what it would mean as well is another absurdity, which is the side of the family which is traced by Matthew is massively longer lived than in Luke's account, e- even though from Abraham to David, um, Mary and Joseph have completely common um, ancestors. So we can't read those chronologies as uh, as as cohabiting very easily. Mm. Um, so what do we do with them? We've we've either got to throw them away and say oh, this is gibberish, or we've got to think there may be something more complex, more interesting mm. going on here. I mean, I would uh, highly recommend people reading your books. You go into great detail about all of this, don't you? But if you, I guess if you were to summarise briefly, as briefly as you can, because it's very complicated, but some of your thoughts about the genealogies and, and why Matthew and Luke were doing, you know, specifically what they were doing in those genealogies, what yeah. would you say? Well, one thing we can say, which does link them, is that they're both seeking to link Jesus to the line of David. They're both, by these genealogies, seeking to establish Jesus's messianic credentials. So they both have Jesus born in Bethlehem, the city of David, and and they both in the genealogies um, specifically uh, mention David. But they, they don't state that messianic connection in the most obvious way. So Luke has David as only one of many forebears mm. of, of Jesus. Uh, and he traces the Davidic line, not through the big Jewish celebrities, um, Solomon and the great kings of Judah, but down a really obscure genetic route through Nathan. So, so what's he saying there? Maybe he's saying that this Messiah is different. Don't expect a big military hero like David. Um, so Matthew has fewer people on his list, but he has the big figures, David, Solomon, uh, Rehoboam, Azar, and so on. So he has Jesus as the royal Messiah. That's more or less what you'd expect. That's what the, the Jewish constituencies of the time would have expected of the Messiah. But then you have serious weirdness. Mm. Um, and it's, it's really easy to miss. Matthew, at the end of the genealogies, groups the ancestors in a sort of executive summary into three groups. He says, here are three groups of 14. Well, that's interesting in itself. Uh, Why 14? Well, Mm -hmm. probably it is that the the name David, uh, Dalet Vav Dalet in Hebrew, three consonants, have a numerical value of 14. 
Um, so he's he's saying, if you look into what Jesus most fundamentally is, uh, he is uh, David, in the line of David. But then there's something really strange. He says that there are three groups of 14, but there aren't. <laughs> um, but the last group has only 13. Mm. And this isn't because uh, Matthew's dim. It's not because he can't count. Um, I, I think the best thought is that that 14th generation is the risen and transformed Jesus, a, a mm. new generation, a new kingdom, but not sufficiently in the line of David to, to be listed there. Mm. Um, so great riches, great mysteries, deep coding. There's also yeah. some really significant things, isn't there, in Matthew's genealogy in terms of the women that he yeah. mentions. Yeah, so, so Ma Matthew mentions women per se, which is odd. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the women that he chooses to mention are very odd indeed. So mm -hmm. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba and Ruth. Um, all of these are either people who are foreign themselves or have a foreign husband mm. and all apart from Ruth and possibly even Ruth um, have murky sexual pasts. So you know, Tamar seduces her father-in-law as she poses as a prostitute. Rahab's a harlot in Jericho. Um, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. Um, so what all that is about, what's all that about? Um, it may be that uh, by emphasizing the non-Jewishness uh, uh, bits in Jesus's history, um, he's trying to broaden Jesus's appeal to non-Jews. Well, it doesn't really work for me. Um, Matthew's constant citation of Jewish scripture implies mm. that his, his main interest is in convincing Jews that uh, this is a, a completely kosher Messiah. Um, perhaps he's dealing with criticisms of Jesus's own Jewish credentials. So, uh, the Sadducees in particular uh, were very keen on what they thought of as pure Jewish blood, perhaps mm. Uh, by putting these biblical figures who had question marks over their own uh, Jewish credentials in the in the line, um, he was saying that the question marks over Jesus's own Jewish credentials weren't disqualifying um, uh, factors from mm. the posts of the Messiah. Perhaps he's dealing preemptively with criticisms of Mary's own Jewish credentials. You know, that, that would be an obvious reason to, to cite women. Um, the sexual references, well, I think probably what that is about um, is uh, hinting at the fact that there were questions about Jesus's own uh, origins circulating. Yeah. I mean, certainly uh, there were early rumours about his alleged illegitimacy. There was a, a story that Mary had had an affair with a soldier called Panthera. Uh, and Mary's 
husband found out and divorced her. There are late second century Jewish rumors of Mary being a prostitute. Um, fourth century actor Pilate talks about um, Jesus being the result of, of an adulterous relationship. And, and there are Talmudic comments about uh, Miriam, the mother of Jesus, being married, but had a lover, Pandera, who was the father of Jesus. So uh, perhaps um, Matthew is mentioning these sexually uh, questionable women mm. um, who appear in the in the Hebrew Bible as, as uh, um, involved in the Jesus story in, in an attempt to say that if, which is denied, um, Mary's uh, not been as pure as mm. the driven snow, that still doesn't mean that Jesus can't be the Messiah. Two points to make about that. Um, firstly, Matthew is absolutely clear that the first line story is that Mary was a virgin, mm. both before and after the conception. But, but secondly, um, that these allegations of illegitimacy would have been thrown at Jesus throughout um, his earthly life. Yet it's yet another part of of, of his uh, inhabitation of of the the darker places and the mm. more problematic. Uh, ways of ways of being a human. You know, he he was not he was not immune from from those playground slurs, from, <laughs> from those lurid uh, red top references. Yeah. Um, well, we'll dive more into the you know the virgin birth narratives in a, in a little while. But just I'd love to just sort of dwell a little bit on the you know as you say there Matthew's use of the Jewish scriptures. You say in your book um, that Matthew pay, Matthew plays fast and loose with the Old Testament. He certainly misquotes, um, and and then yet you say um, that he has a much higher view of scripture than we do. So how can he be kind of doing both the kind of purposeful misquoting for want of a better phrase and then the high view of scripture how does he kind of hold those two in tension do you think i think it's plain that matthew sees the hebrew scriptures as pointing clearly to jesus so that's that appears in almost every paragraph of the whole of his gospel. Mm -hmm. He's he's continually uh, showing his readers um, how Jesus has been prefigured um, in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and because he has seen how Jesus is prefigured, um, he's able confidently to interpret what those scriptures really saw, really were hinting at. Mm. He's saying that those scriptures um, saw, yes, but sometimes through a glass darkly. And, and now we've seen the real thing. We've seen what they were looking towards, and we can we can rewrite those 
Jewish scriptures. We can we we can tell you what they should have said had they seen things completely clearly. So the most famous example of that is is probably uh, Matthew's citation of that famous uh, passage in Isaiah seven, mm-hmm. which which we all love hearing when we hear the Messiah being sung. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Um, and Matthew follows the translators of the most important Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the Septuagint, um, which renders the Hebrew word Alma as Parthenos, um, virgin, rather than its more natural meaning, uh, which is young woman. Now, this is not a mere mistake by Matthew. Uh, Matthew was a Jew and he was a very Jewish Jew. Um, he knew very well what the natural meaning of Alma was, and yet he decided um, specifically to render it as Parthenos, virgin. So he was saying, now that we've seen what actually happened, we, we can tell you what Isaiah 7 really meant. Um, a, a, another example is, is, is in a, an apparent miscitation of of that passage in Micah. Um, Matthew says that Bethlehem is by no means least amongst the rulers uh, of Judah. Um, the original doesn't say that at all. Mm. <laughs> um, it, it says Bethlehem is one of the little clans of Judah. Mm. Um, Matthew's rewriting the Old Testament and, and he adds to it um, a, a reference to a, a ruler who will shepherd Israel again, presumably to ring those messianic Davidic bells. Um, but that time he he's not choosing to cite from the Septuagint, which is very interesting. So he, he, he specifically in the Isaiah quote, um, uh, adopting the, the Parthenos Septuagint translation, when he um, goes to Micah, uh, takes completely his own line across country because he thinks he knows what the real line across country now is. Um, a, a, an- another example um, in Hosea. Uh, Hosea actually says, out of Egypt, I've called my sons. Matthew misquotes it in inverted commas. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Um, talking about uh, the exile of the Holy Family to, to Egypt. So he, he thinks that he knows better than the Old Testament scripture. <laughs> he thinks that he can, he can tell the Old Testament what it really uh, would have said had it understood things properly. Mm. Again, there's so much more detail in your book, so I would highly recommend that people um, you know, go and read Go and read your book. Um, and another um, another thing that you talk about a lot in your book, The Christmas Mystery, um, is the census. And again, we've not got loads of time here, but on the surface of it, it looks like Matthew and Luke with, with the census are potentially dating Jesus's birth sort of perhaps about 10 years apart if we go just on the census alone. Would you just very briefly describe why why that might be the case and, and why you think that actually 
perhaps it's not that much of an issue. Um, again, I would very much revert people to your book, but just if you can, in a nutshell, what's the, what's the issue with the census in Matthew <laughs> and Luke? Yeah. So uh, according to the historian Josephus, Quirinius, under whose uh, aegis the census happens, became legate of Syria after the son of Herod the Great, Archelaus, is deposed. That's in six uh, of the common era, so after Jesus was born. So that implies that Jesus is born in or after 6 AD. But according to Matthew, it's clear that Jesus is born during the reign of Herod. Um, Herod died in or around 4 BC. So here's the problem in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Putting all that together, Matthew says... Jesus is born before 4 BC. Luke says um, he's born after 6 AD. Um, we've got one absolutely firm date, uh, which is the death of Herod, 4 BC. Um, now, there are various ways of, of trying to untangle this, but, but the, the simple point is that uh, the the suggestion that Luke and the census are historically unreliable rests entirely on Josephus. Mm. And, and Josephus is, as most historians um, in this area agree, notoriously unreliable. He's a particularly um, unreliable in relation to um, his chronology. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I don't think we can conclude on that basis that uh, this story of the census is nonsense. There are, there are other reasons uh, which um, people have used to try to say that the census is unhistorical. Um, for reasons that I set out in the book, uh, I, I don't think they're really serious criticisms, but uh, we might mention uh, the fact that people say it's implausible that uh, there would have been a registration of the whole world. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's true that we know of no empire wide decree from Caesar Augustus, but he, he was very keen on censuses. He was yeah. a, a massive reorganizer of, of Roman bureaucracy. Um, it, was it feasible that um, a census required people to go to their ancestral homes? Well, we don't know, but what we can say is that Rome did tend to preserve local customs. Um, if it was possible. Uh, we don't know much about Jewish inheritance and property law at the time. So it, it's not completely absurd to say that uh, there might have been some requirement to go to the ancestral home to, uh, to uh, say, yes, this is my property, these are my title deeds or whatever. Um, some people say, oh, it's implausible that the whole family uh, went well. This was a pregnant woman. <laughs> <laughs> she might have given birth, as indeed she did, uh, while Joseph was away, um, fulfilling his census obligations. Um, and surely he didn't want you there with him. So uh, I don't think that the criticisms of the historicity of the census are really too much to worry about. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable.
I suppose all of that being said, does it matter when Jesus was born? And and I guess why have we come to the somewhat arbitrary date of the 25th of December to celebrate his birth? Yeah, well, I, I think that the chances of the real Christmas Day being the 25th of September are about one in 365. <laughs> um, we've no idea when Jesus was, was really born. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that probably um, linking uh, the birth, the, the date of the celebration to the 25th of December is a much later borrowing from solstice celebrations or Sol Invicta, so the, the festival of the unconquered sun, which one of the Roman emperors um, inaugurated in the third century uh, might be behind it. We don't have the 25th of September mentioned anyway um, until uh, as the birthday until the 4th of until the fourth century. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's probably not. <laughs> Um, and does it matter where he was born? Because that's the other thing that, you know, people have kind of discussed, isn't it? You know, was it a cave? Was it an inn? Was it a house? Was it Bethlehem? Was it all of these different places? Does it matter where Jesus was born, do you think? I like both the idea of a an inn or a house and the idea of a cave. Um, I, I like the idea of a cave because I like the idea of of, of incarnation beginning in the womb of the world mm-hmm. and uh, welling up into the into the the light. Um, I like the idea of of an inn uh, because I like the idea of of incarnation expressing itself first in a, a most disreputable place. Yeah. I like the idea of a house uh, because. Um, uh, houses are to do with with ordinariness and all the difficulties which go with ordinariness. Um, so no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't really matter, um, apart from having those those uh, comforting resonances and um, exactly where he was born. But of course, it does matter that the um, the the, the stories which are told in the canonical gospels are are broadly reliable mm. um so matthew as we've as we've indicated uh, has jesus uh, born in a house uh, luke has him born in an inn um it's not difficult to see that those might be the same thing mm-hmm. uh, there might be a house bolted onto the side of an inn um or uh, an inn might have done service as a house. So I don't think that's a significant discrepancy. Um, Certainly we know that when the mother of Constantine, um, Helena, uh, came in the fourth century to do her tour of the holy places in Palestine, um, she was confident having done a good deal of research that Bethlehem was the place mm-hmm. and she identified what the uh, church of the nativity in Bethlehem uh, insists was a cave uh, well there's no reason why a 
cave uh, couldn't have existed uh, as a sort of basement of an inn or mm-hmm. a house. Um, so I'm not troubled by that. It matters, of course, that the birthplace was in Bethlehem for reasons which go to the reliability of, of Luke and Matthew, yeah. and which are, are also important because they make the messianic claim through the link to David um, all the clearer. But whether it was an inn or whether it was a house, whether it was a cave in, in Bethlehem, doesn't seem to me to matter all that much. Well, talking about the reliability of scriptures there, Matthew is the only gospel that mentions certain things such as the star, the magi, the massacre of the children. Is there any kind of external evidence that might point to the veracity of these things? Or is it only in Matthew's gospel that we see some of these um, elements that I guess we've come to see as you know, a huge part of the Christmas story. I just, I was at a carol service yesterday and I've just got the words for uh, we three kings of Orientar here. And, you know, it just, there's an assumption of all of those things, isn't it? We three kings, which obviously isn't mentioned, um, of Orientar, bearing gifts we travel afar, star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright. I mean, are, are they part of the Christmas story? Can we know that for sure? Well, uh- as you say, Matthew's entirely on his own in talking about the star and the magi and uh, the massacre of the innocents. We don't have any corroboration from the New Testament. We don't have any corroboration from secular sources. Um, it seems to me, though, that it's unlikely that he's just making them up in order to convince us that Jesus is fulfilling the messianic prophecies of the Hebrew Bible. Um, suppose the star's concerned. Well, it, it's it's right that when lots of Roman emperors were born, uh, sources talk about portents in the heavens. And, and it may be that Matthew is using that comparison to suggest that Jesus is uh, at least equal to the Roman emperor. Um, but the fact that he is alone in talking about that um, might mean that we should take him more seriously in uh, considering what he says. It, it, it plainly indicates that he's not colluding with anyone else in um, making up things to bolster Jesus' uh, messianic credentials. Um, the, the star seems an, a, an odd thing to assert because it's not obviously related to any of the Hebrew Bible. Um, people have suggested that Matthew's thinking of that verse in Numbers, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. But normally when he's trying to make an Old Testament point, he bungs the Old Testament reference yeah. in and spells it out. He, he doesn't do it here, um, which makes me take him more seriously. Um, makes me think that he is talking about a, an astronomical fact. It, it's true that no known astronomical body tallies with the account that Matthew gives. Um, no comets or anything really work as candidates, although people have tried to make them work. But however comets 
manifest. They don't go ahead of people, mm. uh, leading them to places. And Matthew knew that. They wouldn't stop over Bethlehem. And it would be perfectly obvious if Matthew was telling lies about these things, that he was telling lies about it. So it seems a strange thing to do, um, to, to make a point, if it's not obvious what the point is that he's trying to make. Mm. So it, or, or the stars are really high-risk strategy. Yeah. Um, if he's inventing it to make a point about Jesus's status. Um, the Magi, we've, we've mentioned before, these are not kings. Um, these are astrologers. Mm -hmm. These are shamans. These are people who uh, would be shown the door at lots of modern evangelical churches. Um, maybe, again, there's uh, an implied connection, Matthew, with uh, the prophecy of uh, uh, Balaam. But again, he doesn't spell it out. Mm. Um, so it seems to be an unnecessarily, dangerously elaborate story, um, if it's true. W what we can conclude about it um, for our own reflection is that the most unlikely people are the the, the first witnesses mm. of, of the truth about Jesus. And it, it's not the evangelical hierarchy um, who who get it right. It's not them who are invited to be the, the primary witnesses. It's the left fielders. This is a left field Messiah yeah. um, who appears in a really weird, dangerous way, in a really dark, dangerous place, witnessed by people who most modern Christians regard as uh, exorcisably heretical. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a point, point worth making. Um, so, so, I mean, so far as the murders are concerned, you, you mentioned that as well. Mm. Um, so, Matthew does make a, a connection there with um, the Hebrew Bible, which, uh, of course, bolsters up his, the, what, what I've just been saying in the relation to the star. Um, when he doesn't make yes, the, yeah. express uh, Old Testament connection. So he, he talks in relation to the murders about a, a voice being heard in Rama. But the original context of that doesn't seem to relate to messiahship at all. Mm. Um, it, it's to do with the exile of the northern tribes to Assyria. Um, so it, if he made up the massacre to fit that prophecy, it, it's wholly unclear why he would do so. Uh, it, it serves no very obvious theological purpose. Uh, if I were writing Matthew's gospel for him, um, I would uh, link the murders in Matthew's gospel with the killing of the little boys in Egypt. Yeah. Uh, far more useful as, a, uh, as a, an explanation of who Jesus is, far more useful because it portrays Jesus as a Moses figure leading his um, his people out of exile but he doesn't do that mm. so, again it's weird it doesn't it appear to serve any very obvious um, expository purpose that makes me think that it's probably true uh, anyway we know that uh, Herod was precisely the sort of person who did this uh, sort of thing there are lots of examples of him uh, killing people randomly in Josephus. Mm. Um, so not at all implausible. 
So one of the things that it does appear in both Matthew and Luke, but has been a real point of contention down the years is the virgin birth narrative. So before we get into kind of the specifics, why is it important that it was a virgin birth, do you think? Yeah. Well, I like Rome Williams on this. Um, so Rome Williams would say something like the the, the conception, the virginal conception of of Jesus is a story about the absolute priori- priority of the of the action of God in Jesus's life from the very first moment that there's anything in Jesus's womb. Um, it's a story about um, how God brings new life where no life can be expected. Mm. So there's a, a clear link to those stories in the Hebrew Bible about Abraham and Sarah and Hannah and Samuel. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a statement about, uh, about Jesus's specialness. And it's a story about um, God's purposes um, and a, a linking of Jesus's story with um, those uh, motifs in the in the Hebrew Bible. And um, all that said, <laughs> I I agree with Karl Barth that the virgin birth is not a condition of the incarnation. Um, but it's an accompanying miracle, Bart mm-hmm. put it. Um, it. It was generally believed from the very earliest times, but it's not until Augustine, really, that people start making um, a really big deal about it. Um, it. It may be that... Um, when it started to be used um, to say something about who Jesus was, there were resonances, at least in the minds of the hearers, with other figures in the ancient world who um, had been fathered uh, in miraculous ways by God. So the mothers of some of the pharaohs are impregnated by Ammon, uh, Romulus, the son of Mars, uh, and Alexander the Great, in one account, even has a virgin birth. He's conceived before his parents' marriage is consummated. But all of those are are different from the the strange biblical account that we we have of Jesus. And all of those involve a physical impregnation yeah. by a, a male element, all of which are absent from Mark and Luke, which which suggests to me that um, w- that the virgin birth has a, a, an origin which is different from the, the the origin which gave rise to the Romulus, Apollo, pagan Augustus stories. type type stories. Mm. Um, it, it was also. And I think this is important. It, it was also a really dangerous story to tell um, in the light of the fact that the very early church was 
um, in a struggle for its life against the agnostic, against the Gnostics. So the, 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 the Gnostics were, were matter denigrators. Um, the early church wanted to emphasize the, the fleshly nature of Jesus. The, the Gnostics wanted to say Jesus is a purely spiritual creature. Mm. So it, to emphasize the virginal conception of Jesus um, in the light of, of that debate with the Gnostics, seems like a, a counterproductive thing to do. The, the, the obvious rhetorical strategy w- would be to say, yeah, he, he was born in a, an ordinary way. He's, yeah. he's, he's a fleshly man. Uh, Joseph was his dad. Um, Mary was his mum. Uh, you all know uh, how natural birth happened. Um, he's conceived naturally he is a he's a normal man just like you and me even if he has in some way uh, been blessed by god that would have been the the yeah. obvious strategy but they don't do that um uh, and the fact that they don't do that suggests to me that they had good reasons for not doing so and it would seem to me that the best reason for them not doing so is that this virginal conception is true so obviously the gospel writers think it, the virgin birth was true, but yes. it's interesting that the New Testament writers um, after the gospels, so the New Testament letters, don't mention virgin birth at all, really, do they? They don't. Um, so you can't spell a virgin birth out of Paul, for example. Mm. Um, so some people try to read it into Galatians, um, which Paul talks about um, being born of a woman, but that just says he was born of a woman. Yeah. You, you, you simply can't, cannot, however hard you strain, um, see a virginal conception there. Um, and as we've been discussing, there's there's not a, a whisper of it um, in either of the other uh, two canonical Gospels. Um, in the Apostolic Fathers, um, who write before the middle of the second century, uh, there's no mention of it when they discuss the origins of Jesus either. I, I think the reason for that is that, that their, their concern is to work out who Jesus was. You know, they're, they're, concerned to, they're concerned to emphasize his, his continuity with the with the eternal God, they're mm-hmm. much more they're much more convinced by John's exposition of who Jesus was. So they're interested in talking about Jesus being begotten from the Father before all ages, mm. um, and the the virginal conception and birth of Jesus was not so central to that debate that they were having mm. um, amongst themselves. Well, we're nearly done here. And again, I feel like we're just scratching the surface of this huge topic. And please do go and read um, Charles Foster's brilliant book, The Christmas Mystery, because there's so much good stuff in there. One thing I wanted to ask you about, Charles, is um, this kind of, there seems to be sort of double standards, doesn't there, when people are looking at the biblical narratives of the stories and then perhaps the secular um, sources. Would you say just a little bit about that and how we should approach the secular sources versus the biblical narratives when we're looking at the Christmas stories? 
we should approach the secular sources um, with exactly the same uh, critical eye that we uh, approach the gospel stories. Um, so we've acknowledged that the gospel writers are writing with an agenda. Uh, so were all those secular writers. Um, uh, the secular writers didn't have access to all the uh, available information, nor did the gospel writers. So um, these are these are humans with uh, human biases and uh, restrictions in access to all the available data. Um, Say so we should we should read our Bibles with skepticism, and we should read Josephus and the other um, sources who pertain to the uh, historicity of the Christmas story uh, with suspicion. Um, uh, only only by bringing uh, that critical uh, assessment to these stories can we uh, emerge from our immersion in these mysteries with uh, the, the, the sort of robustly uh, verified wonder which will allow us properly to worship at Christmas. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I love the fact that your book is called The Mystery of Christmas. There definitely are still some mysteries about the Christmas story, even if we can know some things. So I guess, how do we hold that tension of not knowing the answers to everything, you know, accepting that actually I don't know is a perfectly feasible answer to some of these big questions around the Christmas stories. But on the flip side, trusting God, trusting the truth of the stories, you know, how do we kind of hold those two in tension, do you think? My favourite line from... Christmas Carol is our God, heaven cannot hold him. Mm. And so often uh, we disbelieve that. We think that uh, our pathetic propositions can hold him, our theological understanding can hold him, our nativity play can hold him, um, our catechisms can hold him, our liturgy can hold him. Uh, God will always surprise. Uh, we've said already, he, he is the great confounder. He is the great smasher up of our presumptions mm. about him. So um, if something which cannot be held by heaven uh, becomes knitted together, in the womb of a Jewish girl, uh, we would expect our words to fumble, our concepts to fumble, our understandings to fumble, and um, our, our words to be silenced. Mm. So how do we hold together mystery and certainty? Um, Having looked at all these accounts, um, I think that there is a really good case for saying that God became man um, in the circumstance which is circumstances which are described in these stories. But what that means 
and, and exactly how that happened as a matter of biological mechanics um, <laughs> is something which we can't begin to go our heads around. Mm. If we get, if we begin to get, think that we've got our heads around that, um, we have misunderstood these accounts and the whole nature of the incarnation really dangerously. So we should expect uh, in every reading um, of these stories, expect in every thought about these stories to have our preconception shattered. Charles, how should we be celebrating Christmas in light of everything that we've learned over the last few episodes, do you think? I think several things. The first thing is to reflect that the world into which God came was a really dark one. Um, and it became a light which shines in that dark world. So we should try to banish from our understanding of Christmas th the coziness which we so love. This is a world which is far more akin to a bunker in a bombed Syrian town mm. than it is to uh, one of the stables that we erect in our churches. Um, we should acknowledge that all our ideas about Christmas are inadequate. And we should acknowledge that the fact that the incarnation happened from inside means that the, the process of the transformation of, of ourselves and the world has to start from inside. It's something which, uh, which gestates under the ground and bursts out. I think that should give us a suspicion of, of the ability of things beamed in from outside, whether mm. they're sermons or ideas or solutions. Um, we should be suspicious of the ability of things which originate uh, in that way to, to transform. Uh, and we should be exhilarated by the fact that the material world is affirmed by the fact that uh, God came to inhabit it and that our humanity is, is dignified and affirmed by the fact that God uh, chose to take a human form. There are no mere mortals, mm. um, which, should, which should transform all our relationships. Uh, everything because humans are made in the image of God and because uh, the whole of the created order has been inhabited by him in human form um, has a, a sacramental quality about it, has, has uh, an eternal lastingness and significance about it, uh, which we don't normally, or at least I don't normally, um, evidence in my life. Yeah. 
Gosh, Charles Foster, so much to ponder there, but do get yourself a copy of this book, The Christmas Mystery. So much wisdom in there. Well, Charles, it just leaves me to wish you a very happy Christmas. Ruth, a very happy Christmas to you too. I've loved our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Charles. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic with me, Ruth Jackson. That was the second part of my conversation with Charles Foster, author of The Christmas Mystery. As always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. Before we go, just a reminder about our brand new online apologetics course, Science, Faith and the Evidence for God with John Lennox. It includes nearly four hours of video material with John Lennox, Emeritus Professor of Mathematics and Philosophy of Science at Oxford University. The course is led by Justin Briley of Premier Unbelievable and it includes questions and assignments to help ground your learning. To celebrate the launch of this course, we're extending a 30% discount until the new year. The offer ends on Wednesday the 4th of January, so enrol now at premierunbelievable.com slash Lennox and learn how to make sense of science, faith and the evidence for God. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Merry Christmas. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.